Begin Podfix Network transmission in three, two, one. What is up, plant people? Hey, it's time once more for the Planthropology Podcast, the show where we dive into the lives, careers, and general awesomeness of some very cool plant people to see what makes them tick and what keeps them coming back for more. I'm Vikram Baliga, your host and your humble guide in this journey through the plant sciences. And as always, my friends, I am so excited to be with you today. Y'all, we're just keeping on with the veritable torrent of botanists on this show. And I've been very excited about this one. Uh, my guest for today is someone who I've followed on social media for quite a while. And I'm just so excited to have her on the show because I love her work. I love the passion she brings to her career and her passion for plants. And she takes some really great pictures as well. So Dr. Naomi Fraga is a research assistant professor of botany at Claremont Graduate University and the director of conservation at the California Botanic Garden. She is a lover of rare plants and desert plants and conservation and just botany in general. She is a fantastic educator, a great social media presence and science communicator, and just really one of the nicest people I've gotten to talk to. So you're really going to love this conversation with Naomi. We talked about every Everything from um, drama surrounding the renaming of plants to thoughts on teaching and education and uh, gatekeeping in science and so many other good things. You're really going to love this one, y'all. You really are. Uh, a couple of things up front before we jump into this. Uh, my hosting provider, Buzzsprout, which, by the way, if you're looking to start a podcast, you could not do better than Buzzsprout. Uh, they've started offering a service where podcasts on Buzzsprout can promote on other shows. And I thought this would be a great way to give y'all access and let y'all learn more about some of the other great shows hosted on Buzzsprout. So it's a new service and I don't know exactly how it works. I'll just be real honest with you. So at some point during this episode, you may hear uh, an inserted trailer for another podcast on Buzzsprout. I don't know exactly where that's going to drop in. I hope it's during the mid-roll. We'll find out. We're trying this out. If it works, great. If it's annoying and it doesn't work for you and you hate it, let me know that and I'll pull it out. But you'll hear a couple of trailers today. But without too much more rambling, let's hear from Dr. Naomi Fraga and let's talk about plants. All right. Well, we're back once more with Planthropology. Uh, Naomi, thank you so much for taking um, some time out of your busy field season to come talk to me. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's um, I'm really glad to be able to be on and talk about plants. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this. I've I've uh, followed along with your what you do on Twitter and, and stuff for a while, and I like I love everything you post, and it's it's really exciting for me to get to talk to you. Oh, thanks. You know, uh, Twitter's like a great place to meet other plant people I've found. So it's fun to share. Yeah. Plant, plant excursions and finds. Plant Twitter's great. Like it really is like, uh, I, of course there's always a weird corner of anything on Twitter, but I feel like I shouldn't even say this out loud. I feel like I'm jinxing this right now, but I feel like we're one of the less toxic corners of Twitter and I'm going to knock on wood or something right now just to make sure that that something doesn't fire off later this afternoon. <laughs> but, 
No, I totally agree. Um, that's, you know, botany Twitter is like a little safe haven and just nature Twitter in general. I find um, you can find a lot of wholesome content and um, yeah, less, um, I don't know, anger or other issues. <laughs> nonsense, whatever. <laughs> so you were in the field this morning, is that right? I was. I was out searching for rare plants out here. I was actually, um, the majority of my work takes place in the deserts in California, but I was actually in the neighboring state of Nevada looking for some rare plants to um, collect seeds to place in our seed bank. Very cool. And I want to dive into that um, a little bit more as we get into the episode. And you said seed bank, and I actually am making a note right now to talk more about seed banks because that's not something we've discussed a lot on the show. And I think it's something that is really fascinating that people should be aware of. You know, they should know that that's a, a thing. Um, but why don't we start off and, and just give you a chance to introduce yourself a little bit more. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? All of that fun stuff. Well, sure. Um, so I um, am a botanist, a California botanist, and I was born and raised in Southern California. I grew up in Los Angeles County, um, which I think provides uh, an important um, the, an important backdrop to kind of in terms of like who I am and who I've become because Los Angeles County is the most populous county in the country. Um, I didn't grow up in the city of Los Angeles, but the greater Los Angeles area is just an enormous metro- metropolis, sort of a constant sea of concrete and asphalt. And I didn't have a lot of access to nature growing up. I didn't know anything about California native plants growing up. I didn't learn about that until I was an undergraduate at Cal Poly Pomona, which is just about 15 minutes from where I grew up. So I'm a first-generation college student. Um, I was a commuter student. I uh, didn't live on campus. I lived at home um, for economic reasons. And um, uh, and so college opened up sort of a lot of um, sort of new avenues for learning. And I didn't immediately actually enter as a biology major um, because I had really wanted to go to UC Santa Cruz to study marine biology. I wanted to study phytoplankton. And when I realized I couldn't go there, I felt like my dreams were just totally dashed. Um, and I was just, I was like, well, I want to do work. I knew I wanted to do some kind of work in service of others. And so I thought either something in environment or conservation biology or marine biology where I can help the environment. And if I couldn't do that, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll help people and I'll be a social worker. Okay. <laughs> and um, that's all great, except I learned that um, I really love biology <laughs> and I took a biology class. And that's when I realized that um, biology was where my heart was um, and my brain was intellectually. That's where I wanted to take myself. And so I switched majors to biology and um, through that realized I had no idea what I could do, what I was going to do. Um, and so I was looking for volunteer opportunities and I found a botanic garden. Um, it was called the Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden. Uh, actually, the botanic garden I work at today, which is now called the California Botanic Garden. That botanic garden changed names okay. um, just a couple of years ago. But um, it was through that and starts um, the biology major at Cal Poly Pomona, where I went, requires um, many plant classes as a general bio major. I had to take plant structure and function, plant morphology, um, 
ecology and plant physiology, plant ecology, like all kinds of plant classes. So I was taking all these plant classes. I was volunteering at Botanic Garden, and that's when the world of native plants kind of just revealed themselves to me. Sure. And, and through that, I just had no clue, you know, that there were there was an incredible diversity of plant life in California, that a significant proportion of them only lived in California and nowhere else in the world, and that many of them were rare, threatened, or endangered. And my interest, my baseline interest in conservation and helping the environment, um, I, I, I started to see that connection where I could learn about plants and um, do work sort of focused on the environment. And the, I volunteered at the Botanic Garden. The plant people just sucked me in. They just, <laughs> I don't know how to explain, but in my experience, plant people are just, um, just like, I don't know, people that want a um, very inclusive group of people who um, are just enthusiastic to bring anyone into the fold. And yeah. all they did was talk about plants. And I thought, I'm like, these people, all they do is talk about plants. They don't, they don't talk about gossip or the news or they're not complaining about anything. They're just talking about plants. So I'm like, they had to have something, right? Like plants have to, there's got to be something about this whole plant thing. And so I just dedicated myself. I just thought I'm going to follow this path wherever it takes me. I have no idea where I'm going, but I think I found my people and, and that's what I've been doing. That's so. awesome. So, yeah, so so just to kind of circle it around, like I said, I, I, I grew up in this urban environment, right? And then I came to Plants Through College and then working at this botanic garden. And so then I had like my first hiking trip, my first camping trip was all surrounding searching for plants. Um, and so that was sort of my introduction into exploring the natural world. And so it's been great. It's been a journey ever since. And I'm still learning and I'm still, you know, feel like I'm constantly exploring. And yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And so so most of your studies have been in rare plants, conservation, and those kinds of things. Is that right? I have three degrees in botany. So it's a lot. It's really focused on. <laughs> so um, I have a bachelor's degree in botany. I have a master's degree in botany and I have a PhD in botany. And so the fundamental baseline of my education was just basic knowledge about plants and plant diversity. Okay. And my specific education through my PhD was actually in plant systematics, um, okay. sort of more focused on taxonomy. Um, but I always wanted to integrate conservation into that. And I recognize that um, plant taxonomy is a very applied science because we all use names to communicate things. And in order to conserve things, they have to have names. And so I integrated conservation into, I weaved it into my PhD dissertation work. And I actually didn't have a strong formal education in conservation. I sort of found those opportunities outside the normal formal education track and met with conservationists, um, people who work on the landscape doing plant management, like land management and conservation to kind of learn from them to integrate into my work in botany. Very cool. You know, you, you said something that just sort of got my brain spinning and I've never heard it put quite this way. You said something to the effect of to conserve things, like they have to have names. Uh, and I've never thought about, because 
you know, we make our students learn some taxonomy, even our intro horticulture students, and they absolutely hate it. Uh, but we're like, it's important, right? We need to we need to learn what these are, and it tells you a lot about the plant. But I hadn't really thought of it in terms of the way we as humans approach things. We name everything. Like from like, you know, I've got plants on my shelf behind me that have googly <laughs> eyes, and I think I've named about half of them. I don't remember <laughs> what any of their names are, but I think I've named. And and it's re- that really just sort of opened up a thing in my mind that, gosh, as humans, we struggle to care about things or engage with things if we can't find like a common ground or if we can't like humanize them or personify them a little bit. So that, that for me is like such a powerful um, piece about the importance of taxonomy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really foundational. It's fundamental. Um, there's um, sort of, you know, we could talk about con- concepts about how things should be categorized under certain names and whatnot. But in order to apply the Endangered Species Act or to um, get things put on um, sort of like the Forest Service might have a sensitive plant list. Um, the individual state might also have lists of plants that are plants of concern. In order to get on that list, you have to have a name to be placed on the list. Yeah. Whether or not you're locally rare or globally rare, um, you have to be recognized in some fashion. And so if you're just some sort of like set of populations that people you know, we say we want to conserve diversity at all levels from ecosystems to genes and all these different things in between. But fundamentally, the way things are applied on the landscape is we oftentimes work at the species level um, and and these named entities to conserve biodiversity. That's really, really interesting. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I asked Matt Johnson, and it made him mad, I think, what a species was because it's a hot button debate in, in botany. I'm not going to do that to you, but I have a related question. Um, in, in taxonomy, as we're trying to divide different plants, different, you know, I'm going to say species, different species into different species or different individuals or populations in different species. What, and I, I'm not even sure I know the right way to really ask this question, but like what things need to be like checked off? What are the uh, hurdles like a plant has to pass before we say, oh, this is in, this is a new species or uh, this plant should really be in the genus Bryophyllum instead of something else, you know, like what are some of the things that go into naming an organism? Yeah. I mean, there's sort of like the ideal of all the things you should have. And then there's actually the practicality of what's accepted. And basically what's accepted is a peer-reviewed, what well, doesn't even need to be peer-reviewed technically for a plant species, it turns out, but it needs to be a publication that is available, pub- publicly available for people to read, and it has to have the right format. And that becomes, actually, there's all these rules about nomenclature. And so in plants, we have the International Code of Botanical Nomenclature, which lists all the rules for how to describe a species. It's like a law book. And so you have to have a protologue. And in the past, you had to have um, sort of a description or a portion that was actually written in Latin. And that requirement isn't, doesn't need to be met anymore. So the mm-hmm. rules actually change over time. 
Um, but you have to establish, I know at the last episode, you talked about herbarium specimens. Mm -hmm. So one of the cardinal rules is you actually have to establish a herbarium specimen and say, this specimen represents this species with this name. Um, and then you have to designate the name and you have to write out the description. And usually you have to say how it differs from other things. And so there's sort of like a formula of a publication that you need to follow. And then it needs to be published. And that's all that's really required is like this formal publication. But in terms of what kind of evidence is really best for kind of thinking about, um, like, I want to publish, I think this is a unique species and this is my proof to back it up is um, what I like to think because as a result of my dissertation, actually one of the things I did was I described five new species of monkey flowers and it turns out all those monkey flowers are rare and of conservation concern. And the lines of evidence I used to say these are different monkey flowers from what has been described before um, is that they, uh, there was a molecular basis to them. So I, Um, collected data to make a monkey flower tree of life um, for the specific monkey flowers I studied and showed that they were not related to the things that they were called previously. Um, And there was, uh, so there's genetic data to back it up. There was also geographic data because they formed a set of populations that were discrete and separate from other things that they were previously called. And then there was morphological data. So their form, um, I was able to show that their form was different enough Um, from what they had been previously called. Um, And so when you take all of that combined, and then their ecology was also a little bit different. One of them, um, um, one species I described um, called Erythranthi calcicola grew in limestone rock in Death Valley National Park amongst Joshua trees. And it had been lumped with another species that grew in lodgepole pine forest in the high Sierra Nevada. And so those two sets of populations have like completely different ecologies in a different, in addition to different distributions. Um, different when you saw them in person, when they're squishes of a herbarium specimen, it was harder to tell them apart. Um, <laughs> yeah, I bet. That's interesting. Yeah. So you kind of like look at all the evidence combined and gives you signal to say, hey, I think this different that hasn't been formally described using the scientific process before. And I'd like to give it a new name. So interesting. Okay. Because, you know, I, I, this is, I, I love doing this podcast and talking to so many different people because as I teach students, it, it kind of allows me to keep learning and retraining myself in the ways that I can like communicate some of this stuff to them. Right. Like when we have them remember, Uh, botanical names for things and memorize and learn botanical names and the way we do identification and uh, you know, for everything from leaf morphology to flowers, every, all of everything that goes into understanding the plant. A lot of times they're like, why why are you making us do this? Like, is it, is it just busy work? And you know, they, they're really usually not fan. A few of them really get into it and that's always kind of fun to watch, but you know, I teach non-majors and Average Joe business major is just like, man, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to do it. Uh, but like, that's such an, I, I think it's important to know why and how we come up with these names and, you know, why I'm trying to think of one that just changed recently and recent, maybe a sort of a sliding scale here. Uh, oh, uh, like, like snake plant, right? So snake plant recently went from Sansevieria to Dracaena, I believe. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Am I making that up? 
No, okay. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and so like, it's funny cause I'll look back at our old plant lists as we stuck and, and some of them don't, you know, keep up anymore. And so it's, it, it's just an interesting concept that I, again, I keep going back to what you said that like to conserve things and the, to care about things, we have to name them properly. Like there's a lot of power in names and I think that's cool. Yeah. And um, the names that are provided should convey something about what we know about evolutionary history and relatedness. And so that's why names are changing because, you know, we set up a, we, when things were first described, you know, maybe it was described first in the we had no access to genetic data. And now we're able to really build out the family tree of life and learn more about how things are inter- are related and connected. And so things get moved around in terms of names and people get really frustrated because they're like, oh, I learned it under this name. What's under that name? And I can't keep up and I can't put all these names in my brain. And someone recently told me, um, a wildlife biologist said, um, I didn't become a botanist because you botanists are always using scientific names. And I wanted to find a group of people that would only use common names. (laughs) And that's one of the things when I first started doing botany work was I really, my first goal, like I wanted, I was interested in conservation. Like I always had all these baseline interests, but my very first goal in becoming a botanist was I want to learn how to identify plants and I want to know what they, like what their scientific name is. And I want to be conversant in botanese or whatever you might want to call it, Latin, botanical Latin. Yeah. So that I took, spent a lot of brain energy on that to, to learn plant diversity and plant families and kind of learn to identify all these plants. And then once you kind of have some structure in your brain about, you know, how to identify certain genera, then it's like, there's a lot of sort of filling in the blanks. So you don't have to, it's not like rote memory of, just memorizing, you know, specific species. It's like a whole pattern and, um, you know, um, so, so you can have like little bits of holes, but you know, oh, I know this genus. So, and it looks kind of like this. So you start to like fill in the blanks. Yeah. It could be like a daunting process, I think, to learn the scientific names, but at the same time, it does convey more information what a common name does because it tells you something about relatedness because theoretically taxa placed in the same genus um, are each other's closest relatives, or that's what we strive for. They're like a family unit of like extended cousins. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you're right. And that tells us so much about the care, the management, just the overall uh, uh, origins and other, you know, Mm -hmm physical characteristics and physiological characteristics of a plant. That, that's really fascinating. Um, okay. So this is, this is a question as much for my edification as anyone else's. Is there some repository of accepted pronunciations of botanical names? Um, I think that there is technically is, but I don't abide by the uh, proper botanical pronunciations or the Latin pronunciations. I had a quiz when I was a first year graduate student. It was like a class that was focused on regional flora and they had a pronunciation quiz, the professor. And I got, I say it now correctly, camellia wrong. I, everyone says camellia. I, mean, I think I say camellia. Apparently it's 
camellia. That's what I was told, at least in the exam. That was the only one I got wrong. I was like, that was a trick question. Everyone knows it's a camellia. That's what I've always called it. I've never heard it any different. That's really interesting. Because I realized recently, and I realized this because I said it on a TikTok and somebody corrected me. And a lot of times I take corrections on social media with a grain of salt because people just like to say things, right? But I was saying, I've always said uh, Calancho because that's how it's spelled. And I don't know that I ever heard it pronounced. Calancoe, is that what they said? Yeah. That, that I learned that because some person who knew said it before me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known how to say it. So I find that a lot of people learn pronunciation based on other folks they might have learned from. Or if, but what if you've never heard it said out loud before and you're just reading it phonetically? Um, I remember, I think there's a genus Ariagonum. Everyone says Ariagonum, but when I read it, I thought it was Ariogonum. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, that's how it's yeah. <laughs> But I actually have a debate about this with um with someone very close to me um about certain pronunciations. And um there's like some regional pronunciations, and he likes to roast me when I say a particular <laughs> pronunciation of a plant genus because he says I say it wrong, but I keep I'm gonna keep going with it. <laughs> I think ultimately it's about communication, and if people understand what you're talking about then why do you need to change your pronunciation? I mean, there's like different dialects in English and different pronunciations of English words. I, um, very early in my botanical career, led a field trip from for a bunch of international botanists. And there was a woman from Italy who was there. And we have a genus in California called Facilia. And she kept saying, Facilia, Facilia. And I thought it was great. I was like, oh, this is Italian, Facilia in Italian. <laughs> so, you know. As long as we can communicate, I don't think we need to get uppity about what's correct pronunciation because, you know, I say to me someone else says tomato. Love that a lot. I love that a lot because, you know, so much of science communication is just trying to be understood and, and being, and as science communicators, I think it's important that we put effort into being understood, but then also understanding what people are kind of giving to us, right? We have to find common ground and kind of find that. And, and I think, and I, I kind of, I joke about it and I, and this is such a good conversation because it's another way that I think we unfortunately sometimes gatekeep in the sciences is it's like, because there are people that read constantly and may have never taken a class in plants and have never heard it said, right. But they know the information. And so whether they say Calancho or Calancoe or Facilia or whatever, like I, I, I really love the way you kind of approach that, that. Look, if we both know what we're talking about, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. I just am a big proponent, you know, of meeting people where they are and just being able to not make, I don't want to make botany intimidating in any way whatsoever. And people get very, I've, I've worked with a lot of young interns over the years and people who are self-taught and people get very self-conscious about their pronunciation. Oh, am I saying it right? And I said, yeah, you said it just fine. You know, I understood what you were saying. So don't worry about it. You know, just say it with confidence next time. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think as long as you, um, you know, you know what you mean, as long as other people know what you mean, you did just fine. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I really like that a lot. 
Um, I think this is a good time. We'll take a quick break just real quick and I'll, I'll cut in something where I say a bunch of words about where to find me on social media and stuff. And then when we come back, I want to talk about um, your role as director of conservation of the California Botanic Garden uh, as a research scientist and just all the, the stuff that you do sort of day to day. Well, hey, welcome to the mid-roll. I sincerely hope you've enjoyed the first half of this podcast, and whether you pronounce it Calancho or Calancoe, I'm very glad you're here. Hey, connect with Planthropology all the places. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as Planthropology. The handles vary a little bit because some people beat me to it. Still bitter about that, but search for Planthropology, which is anthropology with a PL slapped right on the front. Look for the bristlecone pine, and that's me. I'm on the TikTok machine as at the plant prof. The plant prof, all one word T H E P L A N T P R O F. I would love for you to follow me on TikTok. I have a lot of fun over there, and it's mostly nonsense, but there's some good plant information too. If you would like to email me with comments, thoughts, anything else about the show, hit me up at planthropologypod at gmail.com or connect with me on any of my social medias. If you'd like to buy me a coffee for the price of a coffee, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash planthropology. That is a way to financially support this show. There's no strings attached. If you'd like to do that, I much appreciate it. If you don't, I'm going to keep making it anyway. If you'd like some great Planthropology merch, head over to my Redbubble store. You can do that by going to planthropologypod.com where you can also find everything else about the show and clicking on merch and it'll take you to that store thank you so much to the texas tech department of plant and soil science for letting me do this and for supporting the show and for being so rad something else that's exciting uh my podcast network Podfix, the Podfix network for the month of june is being supported by sundays for dogs your dog deserves tasty healthy real food not kibble sundays is food for dogs formulated by a vet with only the highest quality fresh meat veggies fruit and superfoods then air dried to perfection perfection my friends made in the usda at a usda human food facility uh, again i think i mentioned this before but this is perfect for picky eaters my dog is not an especially picky eater especially when she likes something but i know she is going to love sundays for dogs and even better it's pretty inexpensive starting at less than two dollars a day to feed your very best friend sundays for dogs is a great option your dogs will have more energy and improved weight a softer coat and just head over to sundaysfordogs.com to take a quick quiz to find the right plan for your pup the best part you'll get 35 percent off your first order from sundays for dogs with code podfix that's p-o-d-f-i-x and that is 35 percent off your first order with code podfix another thing you're about to hear is a trailer for another great podfix show that's just starting up called a vast from my dear friend paul chomo i love paul i really do and this is going to be such a great show about pirates so go check out the avast podcast listen to this trailer and drop paul a line telling him that we need to do a crossover episode about scurvy. All right, here we go. This is Avast, a podcast in which I, Paul Chomo, talk about the golden age of piracy and answer questions like, how did pirates actually talk? Is that pirate video game any good? What even is a poop deck? Do pirate TV shows and movies get anything right? Spoiler alert, 
Not really, but the truth is far more interesting. The Avast podcast is about pirate history, pop culture, trivia, comedy, and maybe even a little sprinkling of true crime once in a while. Subscribe to Avast wherever you get podcasts, and remember, you have the buckles, darn it. Don't be afraid to swash them. All right, well, we are back, and I hope while you were at the mid-roll, all you listeners, you went and read up on the pronunciation of plants, or not, or just pronounce plants however you want. Um, so again, I, I kind of want to get into some of your current uh, roles and some of the things that you do today. So director of conservation at the California Botanic Garden, that is such a cool title. I, I love that. Like that's such an impressive title to me because I am, uh, most of my background has been in um, water conservation and production in more water conservative ways, uh, either in landscaping and um, so my my undergrad was in landscape design. My master's was in tree crop. I studied olives uh, and water conservation and olives. And then my PhD was in uh, urban water conservation in urban landscape. So what what all and so I, I really get excited talking about conservation. So what 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 is all does that entail? What are your roles at uh, the California Botanic Garden? Well, working at a botanic garden, it's a fairly small institution. Um, I think we have, I think, 60 employees or so. I mean, depending on what kind, what you think is small. I think it's a a little bit on the small side in that a lot of staff at the garden wear many hats um, because we have to. Uh, So my primary role is, like you said, is director of conservation. And within that specific role, I oversee a broad spectrum of work. And that includes um, overseeing um, our seed bank, which is dedicated to California native plants. We call it the California Seed Bank. Um, we have a team working on restoration of ecosystems in um, California habitats, and they work in our nursery facilities, and they're propagating tens of thousands of plants annually, specifically for restoration projects, and they're out on the field as well, collecting seeds and outplanting have a team doing work on invasive plant management. And we have a team focused, like a team of botanists focused on rare plant surveys, rare plant studies, rare plant seed banking. And then we also have a molecular lab where we can do conservation genomics work. And so I'm kind of the, I'm kind of the boss lady (laughs) in charge of that full spectrum of work. And so I have a great team, a really talented team who's really responsible for the day-to-day activities in all those areas. And uh, what I see myself in my role is I um, uh, use my expertise in plants and my passion for conservation to guide them in their work, to provide support and oversight and kind of guide the mission of the, well, the mission of the program is guided by the mission of the organization but I make sure that the work that we're carrying out is in line with our mission and really meets the goals of conserving California native plants and provide sort of scientific backing behind all the work that we're doing. Okay. Wow. I mean, that's, that, that's a big job. Uh, I, I manage a very small garden um, and like five people. And some days I have no idea what I'm doing or what, what I'm supposed to be doing even. Um, that's so cool. Can, can you touch a little bit on, uh, and you mentioned some of this in, in your description of the, the garden and all of that, but can you touch on some of the maybe roles of a botanic garden in general in our 
society? Is it because I hear I, I talk to people a lot about this and people go and visit gardens and I think people more and more like to go see gardens. I think it fell out of vogue for a while, but I feel like getting outside and looking at plants is a thing that people like to do again. Um, is there a bigger mission? Is it more conservation? Is it like a zoo for plants? Like what, what are the, what are the goals of Botanic Garden? Yeah. Botanic Gardens really serve many roles and there's sort of a spectrum of Botanic Gardens in terms of like how deep they get into plant conservation. But for the most part, um, public gardens, these gardens that are open to the public and accessible, they could be, some of them are free. Some of them require an entrance fee. You know, many people are members of these gardens. Um, they provide an avenue for the public to learn about plants, to see plant diversity, to become engaged with plants through beautiful displays, through educational displays. Um, and they oftentimes provide community education courses where there you know, might be a course on plant propagation, on seed saving, or on how to use iNaturalist or, you know, Different, all different kinds of classes. And it could even be like how to identify uh, sedges that might be targeted even to more professional botanists or something like that. Um, and so baseline, I feel like overall gardens largely provide um, sort of beautiful landscapes to learn and engage about plant diversity. Um, many botanic gardens across the country also engage in research. And so at the botanic garden I work at, we have a full research program where we have a herbarium of over 1.2 million specimens. Um, so it's actually the third largest herbarium in California and amongst the 10 largest in the country. So it's a really significant botanical collection and it's the most important collection for California plants. And then we have, like I said, the largest seed bank dedicated to California native plants. We're actively, you know, we have research staff dedicated to plant conservation, like their whole job sometimes is to work outside the garden grounds, beyond the garden walls, in natural spaces to gather data on plant diversity and bring collections back. So a large proportion of our collection is sourced, has wild provenance. So we're not growing, we are, we do grow cultivars. And in fact, our garden has been responsible for many California native plant cultivars in the development of those. We, We don't have an active breeding program or sort of cultivar development program right now. But it's something we've done in the past. And we also have a retail nursery where we sell plants to the public. And so um, in California, a botanic garden can have a really important role in water conservation because we can get people to kill their lawn and get native plants into the landscape, which in, so in California, we just, you know, across the West um, and in arid climates, that's like a really big issue to get people um, to reduce water usage in outdoor landscapes. And so we have that role as well to educate the public about um, putting habitat gardens in or um, those sorts of things. So, yeah, so, um, you know, some gardens are really might be a little postage stamp size. You know, some are hundreds of acres large. Our our garden is 86 acres. Um, <laughs> wow. A full day to kind of walk around. And we have areas that are more... Um, curated and more manicured and areas that are a little on the wild side and represent habitats. Um, So it really runs the gamut and I think there's something for everyone. I think it's just tremendous that there's our, the mission of the Botanic Garden I work at is focused entirely on the plants native to California. And so it's only native plants. 
And that's not a common thing you find in botanic gardens. A lot of times exotic plants are featured and focused or, you know, so it, you might think it might limit us. Like we couldn't have an herbal garden or a food garden, but there's tons of California native plants that are foods. And that's something I really would love to see our garden do in the future is to have a food garden uh, focus or something like that. Um, so there's all kinds of ideas and different ways you can display and educate about the native plants of the region. So it's uh, presents a lot of opportunities. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, you know, my little garden's about three acres, so <laughs> it's not real big. Um, and we, we ours kind of started as primarily sort of a teaching collection uh, and, and, you know, for this, the, our intro horticulture class and other classes, it was most of the things that went out in the garden were things that were taught in different classes. And it's kind of grown past that. And we try to focus on not necessarily native, most as much native as we can, but well-adapted plants as much as possible. Uh, we, I inherited this garden or I, I took over this garden about four years ago and there's this poor magnolia tree out there. And, and I love magnolia. Like they're one of my favorite trees, but not in West Texas. You know, it's, uh, it's, I, I'm not sure it's going to make it through this year. We've been super dry. Uh, <laughs> I'll be a little sad, but I won't be that sad because again, it, it really, they don't do well here. And, uh, but it is cool. Just even in our little space, just seeing people come and discover plants. And, and I love that yours is focused on, okay, come discover the plants that like should be here <laughs> that, that are supposed to be here. But I think it's an important piece too, for um, just people to be able to see what the possibilities are, right? You don't, you don't have to have that little gem magnolia or whatever in your yard. You can find another tree or another uh, large shrub to fill that niche. And I think that that's an important part of this puzzle too. Yeah. I mean, you can, I get all kinds of ideas for my garden, from our large, you know, our botanic garden. And there's a lot of plants that I would think, um, cause so just my personal note of me as a gardener is I give my, uh, plants in my yard, zero supplemental water. Cause I'm just like very hardcore about water <laughs> conservation. Um, and so if you don't make it in my yard, um, I will establish the plants at supplemental water, but then once you're established, you're on your own, you gotta make it. And sometimes I'm surprised um, based on plants that I've seen do well and thrive at the garden. Some plants that I see that are more coastal, I'm very inland mm. and more and drier and hotter. Um, some of our coastal plants do really well in inland climates. And it gives me some hope thinking about climate change and plant adaptation and how plants have sort of um, a broad spectrum of, you know, they have a lot of capacity to kind of adapt and um, experience different uh, climate regimes. So. Yeah. And we talk, oh, and, and I, that's such an important point too. Like I, we talk about the genetic capacity and genetic potential of different plants and we, we don't know, <laughs> like we don't know everything they're going to do. And uh, it's, it's sad that we have to find some of it out in the way that we are right. Like how far can we push you before you catch on fire? Like, you know what? Uh, but it is also cool that they're so, like you say, they're so adaptable and they're so, um, uh, powerful in the way that they sort of make up for some of the deficits in the, in the um, world or in the climate is I guess the word I was looking for. And, and I have to say too, you post a lot of pictures of your garden uh, on, on Twitter and um, I guess on TikTok too. It's beautiful. I, I, it's, it's so pretty. And like, I think people that 
there is this, I talk about this a lot in my classes and I did extension work for a while and gave a lot of talks on landscapes. And there's this mental image people get in their heads. I think when you say drought tolerant or Zeric garden, and they think like, I'm going to put in some rocks and a cow skull and that's my garden. Right. But, but there's so many plants you can have lush color, uh, dense canopies. You just have to pick the right plants. Oh, I fully agree. I think about all the different kinds of plants I could put in my garden. I only have so much space. So at some point I have to edit and just kind of like, you know, a botanist garden, sometimes it's kind of a mess because we just want to put everything in there. Sure. <laughs> There's no structure to it. It's just wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, switching gears just a little bit. Um, you're also, you also work as a research professor, is that a research assistant professor? Um, for, okay, two, two questions here, okay? And I've, I was looking at your CV and it, you do a lot. <laughs> you do a lot more than I do. Um, so you teach, you research, you oversee grad students, you manage this. But how do you, do you sleep? Where, how do you find time <laughs> to do all these things? Oh, gosh. Um... I used to bake a lot more than I do now. I was actually kind of lamenting about that because I was out in the field with some botanists and they presented me with some cake. And I thought, I remember when I had time to like make (laughs) treats for people before field work. And I missed that. So I'm trying to find a balance because I would like to bake a little bit more, although baking season is just about over because it's getting hot. (laughs) Um, But um, yeah, you know, it's some it's definitely a busy schedule but i have an incredible amount of passion for everything that i do so it's all a labor of love it's nice to get a paycheck as well of course cuz i need to sure. myself yeah. and house myself but um everything i do i do out of a sense of service um i i think i thrive on working on behalf of others Um, so I feel that's, I feel strongly about, um, even though when I um, was seeking my own education, I had no intentions of becoming a professor. I actually try to run away from that, um, because I wanted, I wanted to work in applied conservation. And as I had the opportunity to do that, I recognized how much I value, um, being able to mentor and work with the people who will be the next generation of botanists, the boots on the ground, people looking and caring for plants and how important that is to pass that on to other people, to get people, help people gain those skills. And, and so I feel like that's just another arm of plant conservation is training the next generation of plant conservationists. So. For sure. And, and there, there's something, there's something special. And I, and I identify with you strongly on this, that like, Passing on knowledge, for one, it feels good. Like there is a direct reward. Like I love teaching. I love being in the classroom. But my favorite thing, and, I, and I'm curious if you kind of feel this too, uh, and I teach probably no, more non-majors than you do, but uh, I teach more non-majors than most people. I think this semester I had 98% non-majors in my class out of 170 students. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, but just that little bit of appreciation for nature, even if it's one very tiny specific thing that they get out of it, kind of just that spark of joy and wonder and uh, whatever appreciation, love for our planet. Like that means a lot to me as an educator and it, it doesn't have to be much and it's usually not, but it's such a cool thing to see and experience. 
I mean, you never know who you'll turn on to plants. And so many people don't have the opportunity or the access to even know that they have this capacity to love, you know? And I, I mean, I think I'm one of those people where I, I had a probably always a slight hint that I was, might be a planty person. My grandmother cared for a lot of plants. I remember learning about like aloe vera from my grandmother. She had a big lemon tree and I used to like to hang out on the lemon tree. Um, but, you know, for the most part, growing in the urban area was just covered with lawns. There wasn't a lot of landscaping that was very interesting. It was like St. Augustine lawn or weed lawns, which maybe I could have been into the weed lawns looking at all the weird things, sure. the weed lawns. Um, but, you know, um, it took other plant people kind of extending their set of knowledge over my way where I was like, hey, maybe that could be for me, too. You know, and um, it just turns out that for me, um, uh, I never aspired to be uh, rich and famous. <laughs> Although my dad says, he goes, because I was in the paper. So he said, I checked the I checked the box for famous. For famous. He says, now you just need to work on the rich part. Oh my God, that's right. <laughs> but um, I think finding um, something that has so much value and meaning beyond that I, I could pass on beyond my time here. I think that was just, I feel like I hit the jackpot. <laughs> so I want to be able to let other people, because I know there are plant people out there who don't yet know they're ready to be a plant person. So I'm trying to find them. <laughs> yeah, uh, that is quite, that's a good task. I like that. And yeah, students listening to this, if you are, you, you don't necessarily get into plants for the money, but <laughs> important work. And uh, uh, it's, I think it's easy to be excited about. I think it's easy to have fun, fun with. And, and like you said earlier, plant people are pretty neat. Plant people are cool. And uh, it's, it's a good community to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, I want this, this is a a sort of a specific question and I don't want to let you get away without asking this. Um, So you, you study monkey flowers, right? So tell us about monkey flowers because you've been posting pictures of some of the stuff you've been finding and they're these cute, tiny little seemingly, I I don't know much about them, uh, delicate flowers. So I always like to let scientists talk about their study species. So I'd like to hear about monkey flowers from you. Oh, I love talking about monkey flowers. So monkey flowers are um, a group of plants in the family Frymaceae. That family is called a lot. They had been traditionally treated in the figwort family, Scrofulariaceae. But, you know, we learned about the family tree and then we totally disintegrated the Scrofulariaceae. And some people I know are still upset about that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's gone? I didn't know that. Okay. Um, Yeah, so that they used to be in that family and a lot of things like penstemon and um, are now like in plantagenaceae. And so it's just a big shift. Um, Anyway, these plants are primarily herbaceous. So, um, and in fact, uh, a high proportion of the diversity are these teeny tiny annual plants and only like 5% of the diversity are these shrubs, these shrubby monkey flowers um, that are present in horticulture. They're the most among the most popular because they're well known in horticulture. Um, aside from the seep monkey flower, it's also this is the thing I have to tell you. I don't want to get deep into it, but I was involved in a taxonomic controversy 
<laughs> when I was a graduate student and I was involved in breaking up the giant genus Mimulus into segregate genera that has made many people recoil at the idea that they couldn't call their favorite plant Mimulus anymore. <laughs> And so, because one of the names, and it wasn't, I didn't, I still need to tell people, I did not choose this name, okay? Right. A fellow named Spock in the 1800s described the genus Erythranthi, and that was the name that was available. And so people, there are, there is a whole group of scientists out there saying, never not Mimulus. Wow. Uh, they haven't made a hashtag, so. So I'm not popular to a subset of people, but I don't, you know what? I'm not here for popularity contests. <laughs> I'm here to um, have taxonomy aligned with what we know about evolutionary biology. And the more data comes out, the more it supports this hypothesis that Erythranthi and Diplicus, which is the other diverse genus, are things that are different from the very first species ever described, which is the type species, Mimulus ringens which is like related to a bunch of species from Australia. Huh. So anyway, so there was a taxonomic controversy, but the monkey flowers are just this incredible group of herbaceous plants that are, are most diverse in California. So they're primarily distributed in California, like 80% of the species, the 200 species occur in California. And um, many of them are rare. And that's why I chose to study it for my work because I was interested in conservation. And I thought, what better way to get involved in plant conservation than to study a bunch of rare monkey flowers in California. And then I didn't realize that the group of monkey flowers I aimed to study had all these undescribed species in it. So it was like, you know, research takes you down rabbit holes and you end up in a place you didn't expect. And you end up getting tomatoes thrown at you sometimes because you change it. Hey, I have survived. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're like infamous in parts of the plant community. Oh, I, yeah. Well, me and other co-authors. So some are more notorious than I am. For <laughs> but I'm still implicated in being involved. And <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I can work the word mimulus into this episode title. I'm going to have to figure that out. <laughs> I'll have a very like specific set of people tuning in and probably getting mad at me. Um, that's really interesting. Um, but no, that's I, I I enjoy listening to people talk about the thing they study, and and that's that's kind of why I asked you that because it's like when you really get into something and spend so much of your life and energy diving into this one thing, it's hard not to get excited about it. And, and I think the, the best way to get people excited about science is to be excited about science. And so it's, it's just fun hearing you talk about it because again, I didn't know much about them and except that they're these cute little flowers. And uh, it's really fascinating that um, there's so many different like uh, morphological features and different like uh, types of them. I think that's cool. Yeah. Well, they're very beautiful, but unfortunately, the little annuals that I work with are exceedingly difficult to grow. And mm. I've been wanting to do a series of like greenhouse studies and whatnot. And I just, because, you know, you read my CV and how busy I am, <laughs> I just don't have the time uh, to even supervise a student to work out some of these protocols for growing them. <laughs> 
One day, though, I know we'll have some monkey flowers growing at the garden. You should add baby. Some of them are easy to grow. First, though. Yeah, some are easy to grow, but others are like, oh, very hard. <laughs> well, I would just look. I mean, we've already done like an hour. That went, it goes fast. It goes so fast. And I feel like I have a thousand more things I want to ask you. So I may have to have you back on again, if you're willing, at some point <laughs> sure. to a- answer all the other questions that are bouncing around in my head. But um, at the end of episodes, I like to ask my guests for a piece of advice. It can be life advice. It can be plant advice. I, it doesn't matter. Just something that's important to you. So what would you want to leave our listeners with? Well, something that's worked well for me that I think would hope could work well for others is to really, um, I think, you know, life, I've, I'm, I've I'm reached the middle, the middle age. And what I've learned is that life is short. Mm-hmm. And so because life is short, I feel exceedingly grateful that I have always followed my passion, my passion in life is plants and working in service of plants. I think if you are able to find your passion, if you're able to dedicate, um, you know, we've spent um, most of our waking hours at work. <laughs> and so if you could really find your passion and make it also you know, line up with aspects of your work, then I think that that makes time fly in a way that is like all of a sudden you've reached middle age and you don't know where all the time went, but it's okay. Cause you've had all kinds of fun along the way. So <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. Um, gosh, Naomi, I, I really, really enjoyed that. That was, that was a lot of fun. And like I said, there's so many more things we could talk about and, and maybe we'll have to do that again. One of these days, I, I would, I would enjoy that, but um, where all can we find you? Uh, I know you're out there quite a bit doing a lot of great education online. So where, where can we find you? Well, my handle in all platforms is Naomi bot and a O M I B O T. Um, funny thing about that is everyone just assumes it's because I'm a botanist, Naomi, the botanist. But when I was in my early twenties and formed my, what would become my online handle, I was really like fascinated by robots, whatever, but now it's because I'm a botanist. So it makes sense. But anyway, you can find Naomi bot. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, iNaturalist and TikTok all with that same handle. Okay. Very cool. Well, do we miss anything? I think we, I think we covered, I covered a lot of cool stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm sure when I'm editing this, I'm going to make a list of questions and I'll, I'll call you again and we can <laughs> sit down and talk about more of my questions, hopefully. But um, uh, one thing I was going to ask you, how long does your um, field season last? You know, you've been out looking at flowers and chasing rare plants. How long do you, end of the year do you go? Uh, well, in California, we have uh, the great gift of having a topographical diver- diversity and heterogeneity. So we can work all the way from February till October wow. because we follow the elevation gradient. Um, so in midsummer, I'm going to be at 8,000 feet elevation in the cool breeze. And then we get another round of blooms in the fall. Okay. Um, and yeah, so we go desert to mountains and everything in between. Long field season. That, that yes, that is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which that, that's great. a blessing, right? Mixed bag I'm there. Always, <laughs> I'm always excited for spring at all elevations. And then 
then there is all the report writing in the winter. So. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not. I'm not writing reports right now, but I am entering final grades, and I. It feels the same. I don't know. It's not, but it feels the same. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thanks so much. I I really appreciate your time. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's this was a real pleasure. Thank you. Y'all, wasn't Naomi wonderful? I hope that you find something to do that you can be as passionate about as Naomi is about plants. That is something that I aspire to for sure. Thank you so much for listening. You know that I do this show for you and that I so much appreciate all the time you spend with all of this crazy nerdy plant stuff in your ears i appreciate all the feedback all the love on social media all the friends i've made through this it is because of you that i do this show and it is one of my very favorite things in my life thanks again to the texas tech department of plant and soil science for letting me do this thanks to podfix for letting me be a part of it and again most of all thanks to you the listener for listening and for being my friends Tune in next week. We will either be listening to some questions and answers or talking about trees. I don't know which one yet. We'll find out. Keep being kind to one another. If you have not been being kind to one another, maybe give that a try. Let's try that. Keep being cool plant people. And you know how much I love you. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to a podcast of the Podfix Network. Discover more audible gems like this at podfixnetwork.com. Make sure to catch up-to-the-minute network shenanigans by following at Podfix on Twitter, official underscore Podfix on Instagram, at Podfix Network on Facebook. And make sure to subscribe to Podfix Presents wherever you choose to find podcasts. The Podfix Network, artist owned and loved.